Hi everyone, I'm Elizabeth Stein, founder and CEO of Purely Elizabeth, and this is Live Purely with Elizabeth, featuring candid conversations about how to thrive on your wellness journey. In this episode, we talk about all things sleep, from the reasons why we are all sleep deprived to the best tips for sleeping better and aging better. Frank shares about his journey to functional medicine, why sleep is so incredibly important and literally affects every system in our body, what happens in the body when we sleep, the connection between our gut and sleep, how the small, ordinary things in our life have an extraordinary effect on our health, and his point of view on the future and wellness, which includes personalized nutrition, wearables, and taking charge of our own health. Keep listening to learn more. Dr. Frank Lippman, I'm so grateful and honored to have you on the podcast today. I'm such a huge fan of your work and approach to overall health. Great to be on. So at Purely Elizabeth, our North Star is really helping our community thrive on their wellness journey. And for you as a leader in functional medicine, that is certainly something that you do each and every day. So this is going to be such a great conversation to share, but I would love to start at the beginning of your personal wellness journey and really just go over what got you interested in functional medicine and practicing what you call good medicine. So my journey started a long time ago in the late seventies, actually in South Africa, when I was still a medical student, I qualified in 1979 as a physician in South Africa, but even as a medical student, I got exposed to traditional healers or, or you know, what we call sangomas in, in South Africa. And I noticed in the wards sometimes when we couldn't help patients, the patient's family would call in the local healer, the sangoma. And I, I noticed that sometimes the, these patients got better and those were patients we couldn't help. Now, in those days, I thought it was all quackery and I <laughs> didn't have a clue about what it was, but... I did notice that some of the patients were getting better. And then after when I qualified in 1979 and I did an internship also at Baragwanath Hospital, the biggest hospital in Africa at the, at the time it was anyway, I don't know if it still is, I, you know, I kept on noticing the same thing happening. And then I went to work in the bush afterwards. I worked in a real rural area and I noticed the same thing that we as doctors were helping acutely ill patients who were coming in with broken bones and who needed a caesarean section or they had appendicitis. But a lot of the day-to-day things that we weren't particularly good at, some of the patients were getting helped by Sangoma. So that sort of opened up my eyes because, you know, as a doctor, we all get brainwashed to think we have all the answers and that's the only way. And then when I came to, my wife and I didn't want to live in South Africa during apartheid in those days, and we emigrated to New York or to the States, and I got a job in New York City in the South Bronx, which is a pretty burnt out area in those days. And I was quite disillusioned with Western medicine, the way it is practiced in America, because it was all about taking blood, doing an EKG, sending people for x-rays, and not really talking to people. The actual connection wasn't that important. In South Africa, we didn't have the money to spend on all these tests. In America, everyone got a million tests and then you had to present the case to the professor the next day. So I I didn't want to practice like that. And and I said to my wife, I don't want to be a doctor here. 
and there happened to be an acupuncture clinic attached to Lincoln Hospital that was doing acupuncture for detox. So I went there and I went to check it out and um, I can go on for another hour talking about how it happened. But long story short, I got interested in acupuncture and, and during my residency in the 1984 to 87, I started going to the acupuncture clinic as well. And I realized then that the future of medicine would be a combination of Western medicine and some type of Eastern medicine, because Western medicine was very good at crisis care and acute care. We were treating heart attacks and pneumonias and broken bones. And I was going to the acupuncture clinic and they were helping patients that we weren't helping people who were tired and they couldn't poop and they had headaches. So I saw the future of medicine. It was pretty clear then would be a, some combination of the two. And I went after my residency, went on a journey of discovery and I got into nutrition and meditation and eventually sort of found Jeff Bland, who was a father of functional medicine in the late eighties. And he was articulating what I was seeing and experiencing and that soon after became functional medicine, a system where you actually use the philosophy of Chinese medicine about creating balance and improving function, but Western physiology and language and anatomy. So it is a real combination of the two. So that's what I started doing, a variation of that in 1989, using whatever worked for my patients. It's a long time ago. I was going to say you're a real pioneer in the industry. And as you think about back then to what I'm excited to dive into today, which is your newest book, Better Sleep, Better You, it just makes me think there seems to be so much more research on sleep. And so thinking back to then, was sleep even part of the conversation or is that just so new? We knew sleep was important, but we didn't really talk about it as much because we didn't really know that much. We just knew that it was important. And then over the years, there's been more and more research about the consequences of poor sleep. And yes, sleep has become much more part of the culture now. But yes, in those days, although we talked about it being a pillar of health, even in my practice, I never really did that much about it. It wasn't something we knew what to do. So yes, that's a great question. It was always part of the discussion, but a very minor part because we knew it was important, but we didn't know exactly why and what to do. Yeah. Well, I think it was two years ago, I heard Matthew Walker's uh, on a podcast and just became fascinated. And for the holidays that year, I gave our whole team weighted blankets and said, you have to listen to this podcast. And so since then, I've really been personally just fascinated by sleep. And so I'm excited to dive in. I, I love that this book is super practical and user-friendly and really easy, I think, for someone to take those steps to work on their health. So why for you, why this book now? And what was the genesis? Um, Well, I mean, I do think Matt Walker's book is really good. And I mean, I I think he's great. Uh, What I found when I read that book, it scared the shit out of me. (laughs) And it wasn't user-friendly. And my whole modus operandi is to take information and make it accessible to people. So I thought, well, this is interesting. It's a very good book, a lot of great information, but not very practical. And it really instills a lot of fear in you if you're not sleeping properly. So I thought, um, you know, I need to do something to make it 
a little bit easier for people. And and one of my patients who I've become very friendly with happened to be one of the founders of Casper. And I was uh, an advisor to Casper. I'm an advisor to Casper. They were at that stage trying to become a, more of a sleep company from just a mattress company because I was an advisor and I started getting more into sleep anyway. And he kept on sending me like every day or week, there was a new link he sent me about something to measure sleep. And, you know, we are trying to work out how to put it into mattresses. And, you know, we, we were brainstorming on how to actually help people measure their sleep because it's not very easy. So that's how it sort of came about, just sort of back and forth with Neil and what the technology is, what's going on, and having to learn more about it because I was an advisor for Casper. So um, all, all these things just work together, and that's how it came about. Well, it's certainly here. The book is here at a time of need. You have this statistic of 70% of Americans aren't getting enough sleep. So certainly there's a lot of people who need the help that you lay out in the book. What are the kind of the root causes? Why do we have such a problem in America with sleep? I think sleep has always sort of been looked down upon. If you sleep a lot or uh, you prioritize sleep, you seen as being lazy or not motivated. You know, it's always had a negative connotation, especially in New York, where I am. People sort of look at sleep as not that important and just a waste of time where they would rather be doing things that they could do where they think they're more active and sleep is just this passive phase of life, which is not that important. So I think that's one thing. Second thing I think is there's so much stress and anxiety in our culture, especially now with COVID. Yeah. I think it's probably one of the most important factors that affect one's sleep. Thirdly, this proliferation of artificial light, which we all live under, and that affects our rhythm and our, our hormonal balance. Because if you're sitting under lights at 10, 11 o'clock at night, your body doesn't know that it's not daytime anymore. So there are all these factors that sort of have come together and created a major, major problem. And what I always say is sleep should just be happening naturally. It's one of the most important factors in in health and it's free. It's like anyone can do it. We just... um, not taught properly. And and I I think it's changing. I mean, I'm a grandfather now and I see my daughter and how she has scheduled our grandson with sleep and how important it is with sleep. And we at our place here, we're, you know, the weekend place and his bedroom is like a cave, which is great. I mean, it's um, so I think the next generation is, is much more aware but my generation, I think, is clueless. I think it's changing, and especially with young mothers and kids and, and sleep and realizing how important sleep is. And I think it's changing, but it's a problem. Absolutely. I think definitely people like you or her helping to educate is definitely going to make that shift. I hope for so. Sure. And you too. Spreading the word. That's good. Well, I I'm a, <laughs> I love sleeping. So I am a nine or 10 hours a night. And I take it wow. very seriously. Okay. Good for you. Not all the time, but you know, the vast majority is that's what I'd like to do. As we talk about getting nine or 10 hours of sleep, what happens during sleep? Let's get to the root of like, why is it so important that we sleep? 
the most important thing to realize is is not a passive process or what your body is doing during sleep is there are a lot of active biochemical processes happening when you sleep. Um, it's, it's when your body restores and regenerates. It's when your body clears out all the active breakdown products that, that are made during the day. For instance, we have a, a system in the brain called the glymphatic system. It's basically a, a detox or a, it's garbage collection and removal system in your brain that only happens when you sleep. So during the day, you're thinking and you're doing all these activities and and all these breakdown products and, and even toxins, but mainly breakdown products from normal processes get sort of build up in the brain. And the only way they get cleaned out is when the glymphatic system comes into play. And that only happens when you sleep. And the metaphor I always use because it makes people understand how, how important it is, is if you have a party at night and you go to sleep and you don't clean up the mess, you'll come down to the living room, wherever the party was, and there'll be a mess there. And if you don't clean it up and you have another party the next night, the mess just builds up and builds up. And until you clean it up, you're going to have this buildup of mess. And that's actually what, what's happening in your brain if you don't sleep. And that buildup of mess can, can lead to all sorts of things, including Alzheimer's. So the glymphatic system is one of those key functions that is happening only when you sleep. But, you know, most of us know if you don't sleep, you know, I, I got a bit of a cold because we've had guests here, you know, it's vacation and I, I usually go to sleep at nine o'clock and I wake up at five. So I have a, a routine. And for the last couple of days, because we've had friends and my routine was broken and I actually have a bit of a, the sniffles. So most people know if you don't get enough sleep, you get sick or, or, or something, you're not as sharp. So we sort of know that, but it's not really ingrained into us how important sleep is. So sleep is a really interesting process. And so when you talk about the glymphatic system, does that happen throughout all the stages? Is that a REM? If you could go into a little bit about the different stages of sleep and, and REM versus deep. I mean, I think most of that's happening in deep sleep. What I'm finding interesting about the research, it's it's in its infancy. The other part that's in its infancy is measuring it. So people, I mean, I get these questions all the time. Now I'm wearing an Oura ring. I think you're wearing a Whoop. So we have these wearables that measure sleep, which I'm not sure how really accurate they are. I mean, they measure light sleep and REM sleep and deep sleep. And, and then people think that, well, I only got X amount of deep sleep or X amount of REM sleep. I'm not sure how accurate the, the measurements are. So just to get that out of the way, because I know when I've fallen asleep uh, or sort of falling asleep watching TV at night, it measures that sometimes there's deep sleep or I wake up in the morning and I meditate. Sometimes measure it if I'm, you know, because I've experimented meditating in bed, measures as deep sleep. So I think the measurements may not be accurate, but but for the most part, you know, as a general rule, and it's not as simple as that. REM sleep is when you're having, you know, more of your dreams um, and and memories get consolidated. Deep sleep is yes, when a lot of this cleanup is happening, but it's not as simple as that. Okay, I won't take my whoop statistics 
hundred percent. Well, now I think it's good to monitor because I think you monitor the changes rather than get caught up in one night's reading type yeah. of thing. I think it's it's important to to get to see how you think you slept. You know, I think it's good to learn what it's measuring and how it's measuring it because I think it's. I mean, I wear it. I think it's helpful, but I'm not convinced it's that accurate yet i mean the best way is going to be to measure your brain waves but we don't have well we're developing the technology but who wants to wear a headset or whatever at night that might affect your sleep (laughs) while we're on the topic of of wearables what is your point of view on these sleep trackers yeah i think wearables are very helpful and i think wearables in general are part of the future of medicine combining tracking and and monitoring these things yourself with, uh, with with other biomarkers the negatives are you can get obsessed with it and depending on your personality you've got to be careful because some people get too obsessive and and they get stressed out if they're not getting the right readings but i think as a general rule i think they can be very helpful and they will get more and more sophisticated and i wear them and like them i think you just got to be very careful so i think that's the important thing if you're an obsessive person it may not be good and you need to know how to interpret the data because you know that's the other thing but overall i do like them and 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 the last thing is as we talked about earlier i mean how accurate they are we're not so sure yet but i do like wearables yeah I think giving you the data, at least I like in the whoop, I don't know if it's the same in aura, but it does allow you to put in a journal the next day after sleep. So you can put in custom fields saying, you know, did you have gluten? Did you have dairy? And so being able to then draw some kind of conclusions of how those things affect. That's good. So that's what I'm actually working on uh, with a startup to actually do that. Because that's great to know. Thank you. Uh, the the Aura Ring doesn't do that, but I do think that's important. So I just tell people just to either keep your own journal or be aware of it. Because if you eat certain things, it can affect your sleep if your microbiome is off. So go, what's going on in your life is going to affect your sleep. So this is where I think the wearables and trackers are important. Because if you can correlate when you're sleeping well or when you're not sleeping well or you can measure your heart rate variability and depending on, you, you know, the other things you're doing in your life. So I think that's where it's all heading. If you can take that information and personalize it to affect how you eat, how you exercise, how you relax, I think that's fantastic. If you can use it in a sophisticated way, I think they're priceless. But I, I, I always just tell people, be careful. But I think that is where... Things are heading. So that's great. So any other thoughts on the future of that personalization and kind of where that might take us? I think the future is personalized and predictive healthcare, which is going to come from an app. It's going to come from collecting all this data about sleep, about nutrition, about, you know, you can measure your biomarkers, about, you know, how you deal with stress. So I think collecting all that data, putting it into a place and and then, you know, 
either AI or whatever is working out how everything's affecting you, I think that is the future because then let's talk about diet. Some people do well on a vegan diet. Some people do terribly. Some people do really well on a paleo diet or eating or keto diet even. Some people not so much. So I think this collection of your own data and determining what is best for you is the future of medicine. At the moment, we take averages for whether it's blood results or whatever. At the moment, there's like a standard, you know, what's the right diet or, or what's the right amount of sleep for someone. So I think to me, that is a future where you can really dig deep and personalize all your treatments and your data. At the moment, also, it's also very siloed. You've got your sleep monitor and you've got this and you've got that. The future is that you'll have it together and you'll own it. You'll have all your information. So if you go to your doctor or whatever, you can say, okay, this is where I'm sleeping. This is where I'm exercising. This is what I'm eating. To me, that's the future of medicine. When we talk, when I, when I coined the term good medicine, we didn't have these wearables. It was just about you know, using all the relevant information we had and helping someone come up with a plan for them. Now we can actually personalize it more and take it to a whole nother level. So my definition of good medicine is going to have to evolve like <laughs> the medicine is. But I think that is the future, yeah. Yeah, it's incredibly exciting. It must be uh, much more exciting for you. Yeah, it's, it's very exciting. As soon as we have, you know, it's, it's almost there, I'll, I'll let you know, but it's, it's very, very exciting. Yeah, I think that's where it's heading. It's no, no yeah. question about it. Yeah. Wonderful. Getting back to some of the effects of not sleeping, you mentioned Alzheimer's and just would love to dive into some of those areas where I think people would think it's maybe unexpected. So for me, say learning about heart disease is something that my dad actually recently had a heart attack and he's a horrible sleeper and everything else in his life is pretty healthy, I would say. And I was like, maybe that was the cause. So it'd be great to dive into some of those things that I think people would be unexpected to know that those are a symptom of maybe not sleeping well. Yeah. So I think the way I see it and the way I explain it is you have these downstream mechanisms that are going to affect everything upstream. What what does that mean? To me, upstream, if you're there having a heart attack, the sleep or the lack of sleep can affect so many processes downstream that will affect not only his heart, but his brain or his or many other organs. And I, I think sleep is one of those processes that affects our bodies downstream. So it can present as whether it's weight gain, sugar um, dysregulation, and then diabetes, heart disease, Alzheimer's disease. It can affect any organ system. It affects our microbiome. So I think to me, sleep is one of those mechanisms that when it's off can affect almost any body part. And the same thing, when you're sleeping well, you're going to you know, affect all those same body parts in a positive way. And, you know, you you mentioned earlier, my previous book was on aging well. I wrote that because I'm aging. You know, as we (laughs) age, you've got to start, you want to enjoy your grandchildren. Probably one of the best things you can do to age well is to sleep well. Sleep affects your body in such a way that almost every organ system is going to be affected. 
some more so than others. But yes, in terms of your father, that absolutely could be a factor and often is. I think my dad needs to come see you. (laughs) Get to the root cause of what's happening for him. So as you talk about how important this is, what are some of those key habit changes that if somebody was having an issue with sleep, which most of us are, where would you start? Well, the easy place to start is your environment because everyone can do that. Simple things like keeping the room cold. Most of us don't realize that a cold room that's like 68 degrees and less is important. And that's because your sleep hormone, melatonin, which is the main hormone that's produced when you sleep, is produced when it's very cold or the the production of melatonin is inhibited a little bit when it's too warm. So having a cold room is important. Having a pitch dark room is essential. So either you get blackout curtains, or if you can't do that, you just get an eye mask. Because once again, if you don't have pitch dark, it's harder for your body to produce melatonin, the sleep hormone. So any little bit of light is going to affect that production. And is that true for going to sleep and staying asleep? Important for both pieces. Absolutely. And and that's something simple. I mean, yes, not everyone can get blackout curtains, but if you can't, you just wear an eye mask. I think that's pretty simple. You know, noise, trying to keep, uh, and by the way, the light extends to having all those, your tech all over your, from your TV to all the monitors to your phone, whatever it is, that light can affect you. I think noise obviously is important. And if you can't block out noise, you know, you can you get earplugs. I think what's a really interesting and contra- maybe controversial issue is your partner not affecting your sleep. I mean, I see this, especially with women getting to their 40s and they complain about their husband snoring and um, affecting their sleep or their partner thrashing or kicking or whatever it is. I think that can be a problem. And the question is, you know, and I'm not saying I have the answer to this and they should move out the room, but the question really becomes, is it better for you and your relationship to actually sleep in a different room because you're actually sleeping or is it better for you to actually sleep in the bed and not get as much sleep? And I always used to say that's crazy to go into a different room. You know, it's your husband or you know, whatever it is, it's your partner. You, you, you want to sleep together. But, you know, I'm not convinced that's the right <laughs> answer anymore. It may not yeah. be the wrong thing to, to go sleep somewhere else. You'll probably you know, show up better in the relationship if you're sleeping, having well, you good could, night's sleep. You could be. So, I, I mean, I, you know, as I said, I used to always have the answer you don't want to go sleep in a different room, but now I'm not so sure if that's the right answer. Um, so those are simple things, you know, trying to dim the lights before you go to sleep. So in the hour before you, you know, you you, you want to prepare your body for sleep. You want to dim the lights. You don't want to go at 100 miles an hour, for instance, and then think you can stop dead and go to sleep. So have some transition period between being awake and go to sleep. Having a hot bath can be actually very helpful on many levels. Putting Epsom salts in the bath because that's got magnesium. It relaxes your muscles, relaxes your nervous system. So having a transition period is helpful. And also doing stuff to just 
chill out before you go to sleep, whether it's restorative yoga, listening to calming music, whatever sort of calms you down would be important. And, you know, I don't think watching TV is a good idea. I mean, you know, a lot of people say, well, it relaxes me. It's the same as alcohol. You know, alcohol will relax you maybe, but then it'll, it's a little bit different to TV, but alcohol, people use alcohol to calm down, but then the way alcohol is metabolized is going to affect your sleep a couple of hours later. So you've got to be very smart about what you do before bed. And one of them is actually not drinking alcohol or not too much alcohol, depending on how it affects you. Which your whoop or your aura ring can tell you. Mm-hmm. Correct. Are there certain things that you do like to take before bed? So supplements or CBD? I'm a huge fan of CBD, by the way. I mean, if you having trouble falling asleep and sometimes even staying asleep, I, I love CBD and in particular CBN now, which is a strain of CBD. So you can get specific CBD strains that are actually better for sleep. Some people use a mix of CBD and THC. So finding the right mixture, the right brand is is important. The right dose, it's so dose dependent. Some people need, you know, three or four times the amount someone else needs. But I do like CBD, CBN, sometimes even with THC. I think that's actually very helpful. Do you have a favorite brand that you can share? Well, I, I... use Alchemist Kitchen. It's a actually a place in New York City and they have a sleep CBD, which is actually CBN based, which I find we recommend that a lot to our patients. Alchemist Kitchen, I think it's called Sleep Well, but it's basically their CBD for sleep. And the other nutrients that, you know, if you find you're agitated at night, magnesium can be very helpful. L-theanine can be very helpful. GABA can be very helpful. So, I think supplements can actually be very helpful. I take the mind body green sleep support, which I think uses those three GABA. Yes. L-theanine and, and magnesium. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. They maybe have jujube. Yes. Uh, which can also be helpful. So yeah, I think you got to, and different people, you, you know, affected differently. Some people take L-theanine and it actually calms it down but two hours later they wake up so it's everything's personalized now and, and this is what i learned long ago in chinese medicine and functional medicine we all different so you have to find what works for you there are generic suggestions and solutions but they may not work for you you got to find what works for you it's true for everything right absolutely So I'd love if you could talk a little bit about how our gut plays into sleep and the role of that, since the gut seems just to be an overall such important part of our health and how that relates. So I'm obsessed with the gut. And I had noticed years ago when I had a cleanse, but that's a long time ago, but basically when I used to clean out people's guts as part of the treatment, which I do, you know, my practice become the gut. Yeah, everyone comes to me for gut problems now, but I do notice when you improve, I did notice years ago when you improve people's guts that they would come back and they would say, yeah, the bloating is better and I'm pooping better, but you know what? I'm actually also sleeping better. So I was very pleasantly surprised to find out when I was doing research for the book that there is actually research on the microbiome and sleep. 
clinically, there's no question I see it often helps, but there's more and more research. And when you think of it logically, it makes perfect sense because there's a direct connection between the gut and the brain. There's a direct highway, the vagus nerve, which goes from the gut to the brain and back. So all all the neurotransmitters made in the brain are made in the gut. For instance, serotonin, which is your happy hormone, more of it's made in your gut than in your brain. But the bugs in your gut release these chemicals, what we call postbiotics. The chemicals released by bacteria, both good and bad, can go into your bloodstream, but also can go straight to your brain. So certain chemicals are going to make you more sleepy and certain chemicals are going to make you more awake. So same as certain chemicals are pro-inflammatory, some are anti-inflammatory. So they can absolutely and do affect your sleep. So I'm very curious to hear what your evening routine looks like. And then also kind of what your morning routine looks like. I have a pattern which actually got entrenched with with COVID. My grandson had just been born and they were, for months, were staying with us. So I got into, and I always used to go to bed early and wake up early, but it sort of got really entrenched when he was around much more. So I, you know, nine o'clock, try to be in bed by nine o'clock. If I'm, 9.30 is late for me. The last few nights, for instance, I went to bed 10, 30, 11. I mean, that's great for me. That made me sick. So I go to bed early and I wake up early. My body clock, I wake up 5, 5.30. And it depends where I am. I'll either, you know, wait for it to get a bit light. Then I go for a ride or I meditate. Usually both, but not always both, depending, you know, what time I wake up. But I try to start the morning with some type of meditation. Depends where I am, I'll go for a ride. And then I come, well, once again, depends where I am. I'll have a sauna when I'm not working. I'll meditation, ride, sauna, cold plunge. And that's the beginning. And then my day, everything else after that is bonus. I fast, I don't have breakfast. I usually do about 16 hours. So that's the other reason I, you know, I try eat at six o'clock, you know, by, by seven o'clock, that's also late for me to eat. So that also got entrenched with my with my grandson. So that's my boring schedule. I eat early, I try to go to bed early and I wake up early and I do my stuff early in the morning before most people have woken up and then I'm ready to go. Boring. Well, no, I was going to say, no, we seem to be on the same schedule. <laughs> It's really helpful. And, you know, it is. And for aging in particular, sleep is really important. Fasting is really important. Meditation is very important. These are all good things for one's health. And you can do it by yourself. You know, you you don't need, there's nothing expensive about any of that. Yeah. Maybe maybe getting a sauna, but otherwise it's a. So as you talk about aging, I I would love just to touch on your other most recent book, The New Rules of Aging Well. And again, I love this is super simple. And this one is, I think, is even more simple. Like, here's just the couple of things you need to do. So if you could just talk about those couple of things, intermittent fasting, as you just touched on, et cetera. Yeah, I think the the, the two concepts to really or the, there are a couple of concepts to to understand with aging why you know why these things work one is this concept of hormesis which is like a you know if it doesn't kill you it makes you stronger so a little bit of stress is actually good for you chronic stress is bad but a little bit of stress 
is good for you. So when you're fasting, it's a little bit of stress. That's good for you. When you expose your body to extreme temperatures like a sauna and or cold plunge, you know, cold hormesis, it's a little stress. It's good for you. You know, most people know about high intensity interval training when they're exercising, short spurts of pushing your body. Good for you. So all these hormetic activities are good for the aging process. Why? Because they stimulate mitochondrial function, which are your energy powerhouses in the body. They also, in particular, the, the fasting activates this, like we talked about, the lymphatic system in the brain. It activates autophagy, which is the cleansing mechanisms of the cells. And one of the mechanisms of aging is these dead cells build up in your body and they're not cleared properly. So when you're fasting, one of the things it's doing is it's stimulating this autophagy, it's repair system and this cleansing system in your body. So, and all these mechanisms, this autophagy mechanism, mitochondrial function, uh, they all decrease as you get older. So you want to make these little changes to actually activate those systems to keep them or don't let them get older as such, just keep them more youthful. I also love one of your tips of just eating less. Yeah. Simple or not so simple. <laughs> actually, it becomes simpler as you get. I mean, you, you know, a lot of the things, believe me, because I'm, I'm not rigid or really that disciplined as my wife would most people can't believe it but these things just become easy and just become part of the way of life and and when you actually fast when when your first meal is at 11 o'clock in the morning you tend to eat two meals i mean i'm, I'm eating at 11 o'clock and then i'm eating at five six o'clock and maybe a snack in between a small salad but you tend to eat less because you're mainly eating two meals that so sort of happens automatically and eating less once again, is really good for your body because it doesn't put so much stress on your cells to actually have to clear all this food. So yeah, eating less, sleeping more and eating less is a good thing for your body. And how about what you're consuming? So for you personally, and also, you know, what your viewpoint is on sure. keto, paleo, all yeah, the I things think, in between. Yeah, yeah. I think sugar is the devil. And too many people have eat too much sugar and sugar dysregulation is an issue. You know, for me, I was eating sort of pescatarian diet for many years and eating a lot of fruit and a lot of grains. And I actually put on weight and I did my bloods and I became pre-diabetic. Now that's not for everyone. And then I went on more paleo diet and I felt great and I was doing well. And then I did my gene test and I have this EPOE34 gene, and I realized that I shouldn't be eating too much saturated fat. Now, once again, everyone's different. So I've sort of fine-tuned it according to my personal body. So I cut back on the set. You know, I used to put coconut oil into all my shakes, butter into my coffee. It's not right for someone with my genes. And then when I researched the anti-aging book and there's this information on longevity genes, you realize that eating too much animal protein can be a problem as well. So I cut back on the animal protein now. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so, but it's not that I, I still eat more paleo-ish. I still eat animal protein, but not as much. I still eat saturated fat, but not as much. 
but, but I think everyone is different. And I think, you know, as you get older, you got to be careful of the protein aspect of food because you lose muscle mass when you get older. And that's a big issue with disability. So if you cut back your protein, even animal protein too much, and it's affecting your muscle mass and causing disability, that's an issue. So everyone, you know, there's no one way, but I think as a general rule, as little sugar as as little sugar as possible, not too much animal protein. And then as you get older, and once again, also depending, and also depending on your genes, if you if you actually tolerate the saturated fat, I don't think saturated fat is bad, but for the percentage of people that have this ApoE3 for, you know, they call it the Alzheimer gene that I have, which affects how you metabolize fats, then you got to be realistic. I can't be attached to any dogma, although I've seen keto diets and paleo diets, as well as vegan diets work for different people. There is no one right diet. And if anyone, you know, these people get caught up in their dogma and they paleo this and it's fine, but it's not right for everyone is all I will say. So for me, too much saturated fat is not a good idea, but for you, it may be fine. So it's you, you this is why personalized medicine is the answer. Definitely. So other than experimenting on yourself and having journal and seeing how you feel after eating certain foods, what test would you recommend if someone wanted to find out, for example, that gene, if they were to go to you or their doctor, what would you ask for? Sure. Well, that particular gene, interesting enough, is even done in the 23andMe, the ApoE3 gene. But I use a specific uh, genetic test, the 3X4 genetic test, which actually is is a functional medicine, developed by a functional medicine uh, practitioner. It's how all the nutritional genes work together. It's a wonderful test. So that often gives us a basis of where people can head in terms of diet supplements, even the way they exercise. So... I always do that. I measure a lot of biomarkers. I think they're important, the inflammatory biomarkers, hormones, you know, because some, some, you know, I'm not against hormone replacement. Some women and men do well with bioidentical hormones. So hormones are important, the inflammatory markers, cardiac lipid profiles. So we, we now can do advanced lipid profiles. I think those are helpful. So it all depends, but I think there's so many tests that can actually help personalize what you do, including measuring your own, you know, what's going on in your body. So I think the combination of genetic testing, some of these blood biomarkers and wearables are important. You can go to another level and measure their microbiome tests and their, you know, urine organic acid tests. But, you know, at this stage, I don't know if that, I I don't recommend that for everyone because, you know, sometimes the tests aren't that accurate. We can get real good specific information from these tests. And, and sometimes we need to check the microbiome, but sometimes microbiome, t- you do different tests, you get different results. So it's tricky. Once again, you need to be the, your own doctor in terms of you need to control what's right for you. Mm-hmm. I think a doctor needs to be your partner and coach maybe, but you need to sort of learn about yourself. It's great for all around advice, learning about ourselves. Absolutely. So we're going to switch gears to some rapid fire Q&A to close out. 
So, and I think I know the answer to this already, but your favorite sleep gadget. I suppose at this stage, it's the Oura Ring, but I'm not attached to it. I think, you know, it's the the only one I've really, you know, experimented with. What's your superpower? I try to treat everyone the same. You know, I think... I'm not attached, you know, I'm very open. I'm not attached to to anything. I try to be as present as I can with people. And that's a superpower, but that's a... It's a superpower. <laughs> Three random things that you're currently loving. So it could be a podcast. My grandson, for sure. My grandson, my sauna, and um, doing a lot of work from home kind of sauna do you have i have a clear light okay nice what do you want more of in your life well i am passionate about this new model of medicine so i want more of i want more people to understand that they can take charge of their health i think our medical system is broken i want more people to understand that and realize that they need to take their own health into their own hands so yeah to me is what keeps me going is the knowledge that we can actually change and make this world a better place on 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 all levels and we have to and and my generation screwed up it's up to the next <laughs> generation yeah what do you want less of in your life Less stress, less headaches, less having to, yeah, you know, you know, as you get older, you realize what's most important, sort of in a, a different stage of my life where for many years it was achieving, writing books, getting my name out there, doing. Now it's more about, you know, I'll just being and doing my own thing. You know, once again, I'll bring up my grandson, but he's just such a, you know, as grandchildren are fantastic. You you're so present with them. They just they're just these bundles of joy. What's a meal that you'll never forget? A meal that I'd never forget. Probably, I would say when we were in Bali, we I, I don't even know how we found the restaurant, but it was a five course meal but every little every little taste was spectacular small little portions but the presentation everything about that the the servers the food every single aspect of that meal the surroundings were, were, were sort of perfect you know I always remember that particular meal do you remember what the restaurant was called I, you know what I can't remember I just <laughs> remember you 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 know so many people have asked me you walk up these stairs to the restaurant and they were like that they, they should put these petals and lights oh. on the side so you just walked up this the whole experience from when you walked into the room to when you left was just perfect and the food was absolutely delicious and simple sounds dreamy what is your favorite wellness hack i would maybe it's sleep um Sleep, and then I would say my sauna going into a cold plunge. And then lastly, what is your number one non-negotiable to thrive on your wellness journey? I think, you know, being kind to yourself, 
being kind to others and being kind to the planet. I think kindness, including kindness to yourself, is an essential ingredient of living a happy, long, healthy life. That's beautiful. Anything else that we haven't touched on that you want to share today? Yeah, I think what's important, what people don't realize is it's the the ordinary things we do on a daily basis have an extraordinary effect on our health. You know, whether it's going for a walk on a beach or in, in nature, spending time with your children, sitting and eating a meal with your family or people who you love, listening to music you like, volunteering, as I said, being kind. These little things that you do every day have extraordinary effects on, on your health. So, you know, we don't think of them as medicine. We're looking for a drug or a supplement or, you know, you know whatever it is. But these, these intangibles have major effects on our health. We, we, we just don't realize it. Same as we're now realizing that sleep is really beneficial for our health and important. I'm sure in, you know, five, 10 years, we'll, we'll know how important forgiveness, kindness, gratitude, all these aspects are to our health. All the little things adding up. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. This was an honor, a pleasure, and wonderful to chat with you. An absolute pleasure to chat with you too. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me on Live Purely with Elizabeth. I hope you feel inspired to thrive on your wellness journey. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review. You can follow us on Instagram at purely underscore Elizabeth to catch up on all the latest. See you next Wednesday on the podcast.